0: Take out a Bible and turn it to Exodus chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your device. Exodus 11. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Um, we are continuing a series of sermons from the Exodus uh, called the story of redemption. And real quickly, uh, as a follow-up to last week, something I'll probably mention from time to time through the rest of this series. Um, I ended this way I basically said for some of us in our suffering and our difficulties in our troubles instead of instead of calling out to Pharaoh we need to call out to the Lord there was that dichotomy like the people of God in that moment were still addicted to believing Pharaoh was their their giver of life and so they cried out to him when things became difficult but when Moses saw the disbelief, instead of doing that himself, he called out to the Lord. Now he said some hard words with the Lord, but, but he called out to the Lord nonetheless. And um, that was kind of my parting challenge is in what way or from what position and place in life are you that you need to cry out to God now? And um, for some of you, it's self-evident that maybe you would do that in prayer, um, or just uh, through maybe even confessing some things to other people, uh, repenting with those who you feel comfortable repenting with. And, um, and it occurred to me that um, I probably could have been better about giving even more uh, for you. And so I'm going to give you a way to actually work out the crying out to the Lord for the remaining our t- of our time uh, in this series. And that's through the writing of your own psalm. Um, we don't, when we write a psalm, actually write a psalm. In other words, we're not reading and writing new parts of the Bible. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're doing, though, is reflecting and acting in a way of a psalmist and expressing ourselves, but also expressing what we know to be true. And so um, we actually have a a ministry we've conducted in the past where we have a a full write-up on what it looks like to read the Psalms, how to think through them. Um, it's not necessarily meant to be all-encompassing, but it's it's meant to kind of stir maybe new ways of thinking through reading the Psalms um, and then reflecting back yourself through the writing of your own psalm. It's a way, tangibly, you can actually cry out to the Lord. Uh, sometimes we cry out and we say exactly what we want. Sometimes we don't. It takes us a while to process. And, and writing your own psalm can actually be a very... Uh, life-giving way to do that and actually very God-honoring to even read it out to God and express what you feel in this moment, but also express what you know to be true despite what you feel in the moment. And so we have actually a write-up on this and we're going to be posting it and I'll probably be announcing just where you can download that and the family update. So if you don't get our emails and you want to get a copy of that, either get it from someone you know who does get those emails or feel free to let us know that you'd like us to be put on lists to get... Um, email newsletters and whatnot and we'd be glad to send that to you and the link will be in uh, uh, many formats probably in the days ahead Um, anyway it's a way that you can continue to live that out throughout the remainder of, of our series continue talking to God responding to how the Lord is working in your heart as we go through the exodus With that said, um, I need to begin today not with Exodus 11, but actually going back to where we started last week, and that's in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, because it actually sets us up for understanding what we're getting in today. It says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is he that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, outside of the basic facts and implications of it, we didn't really deal with this text much last week, but this text really, really rolls the ball for us in terms of what we're dealing with in the 10 plagues. You see, what Pharaoh did there is he effectively said, I don't recognize this God you're talking about. Now, this isn't just a casual philosopher, atheist, a human giving his opinion. That's actually not what's happening here. Pharaoh believes he is a God. This is Pharaoh saying, I know one God and that God is me and I don't know that God. And I will not be following what he tells you to tell me I should do. This is nothing less than Pharaoh throwing down the gauntlet and says, bring it. The ten plagues are a response to Pharaoh's stubborn and prideful rejection of listening to anyone outside of himself. And so that sets up the plagues, which we're not going to get into the details today. I encourage you, though, because we didn't cover it last week, to read through the plagues uh, through the chapters preceding chapter 11, where we get into the final plague. But real quickly, the plagues run across the water of the Nile, turning to blood. Frogs coming out of the Nile and invading households in every inch of the land. Now, you may not know the significance of that, but they actually worshiped and revered frogs. That may sound silly, but they did. They were considered sacred animals. They would never think of killing a frog. It represented some idea behind their worship. And then we saw gnats coming up from the dust of the earth that could not be stopped. And then we saw flies. And it's interesting as... I think of those two things I think about really the the heat and humidity of our summers that we seem to not get out into deep into August and um, if you think about how much you will avoid the insect coverage in our part of the country during the humid times and I'll do a lot for friends I will go buy a industrial strength fan and set it in front of me if I've got to sit outside to keep them off of me but Even that, whatever we experience, is nothing compared to what the Bible describes as this experience. It's gnats and flies that are completely covering it everywhere. Like to the point where you don't even bother trying to get them off you. The death of livestock, their herds. Then the plague of boils affecting their physical bodies. Hail was sent, ruined many of crops obviously damaging. And then as if that wasn't enough, the rest of the damage was done by locusts. Locusts was, were a serious escalation in that part of the world in that day and that time because it didn't just mean a nuisance like gnats or flies. It meant economic destruction. <laughs> They'll ruin the crops. They'll ruin the land. Absolutely Devastating. And then finally, darkness covered the land. So these were the plagues that came, which brings us up to chapter 11, where we see the Lord saying to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This is the Bible's way of saying, he's not going to just let you go. He wants you to go. He's going to want you to go. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And so the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants in the sight of the people. See, he had a history, if you remember the history books. He was actually a part of the ruling class with the Egyptians, and there are people who still have a memory and a fondness for him. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. So, this isn't just happening in a vacuum. Years prior, about the time that Moses was born, the Pharaoh issued an order to kill children of the Israelites to stop them from growing as a people. It's a slaughter, absolute slaughter of children. Moses was saved out of it. And no doubt for years they prayed and cried out to the Lord that somehow there'd be restitution of some sort. Oftentimes in our suffering, In our troubles, we actually don't get restitution in this life. But we know if we believe the texts of our scriptures that the final and better restitution of everything, both sins against us and sins committed by us, actually was provided 2,000 years ago at the cross of Christ. And sometimes in his mercy, he also makes restitution In this life, not always, but he does sometimes. And they've been crying out so many, many years have passed. Obviously, Moses is much older. And God, as his final plague, is responding appropriate to the judgment. Verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So what he just said was, He said, He's going to kick you out. But first, there's going to be a moment temporarily where he's not, and he's not going to believe you, so that These things will come to pass. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you a beginning of months. It shall... Be for you the beginning of months, it shall be for the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to his to their father's house and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, meaning it's unaffordable and practical, then he and his nearest neighbor shall then take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count of the lamb and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it with your sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs At twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn it. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet and your stab in your hand. Basically eat it being prepared. Being prepared. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then he goes on and he talks to them about how this shall be the beginning of a memorial where they will celebrate this over and over on a regular basis. This is a part of their rhythmic community liturgy, how they will continue to remember and worship their God. Verse 28, Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up that night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up out of here from amongst my people, both of you, and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, You have said as you have said, and take your flocks and your herds, As you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall be dead, all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls they bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done as Moses had told them to do, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver, golden jewelry, and for clothing, and the Lord had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And thus, they began the journey. And again, as we move through there, the Lord reemphasized the institution of the Passover meal as a regular rhythmic celebration and remembrance. And also of the consecration of the firstborn, remembering what God had done, and then finally, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so these things were established. And as we read through these texts, um, remembering back that we've begun and laid a foundation from chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, this is as clear a picture of God showing that he comes to crush false gods, to crush false gods and to crumble counter kingdoms that are not his own, that he will show his power and his might on behalf of those who are his. And so he does this, his power and sovereignty throughout these chapters are on display in some of the most vivid and powerful pictures our scriptures have for us. And they are no doubt meant to show a contrast between the Lord's power and sovereignty and what Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and to a point, even the Israelites thought about power and sovereignty. Who was really in control? Who really has power? God's power and sovereignty was on display for all parties. We think about this oftentimes as just for Pharaoh. He's kind of the main audience, but it's also, by extension, his people. But it's also the Israelites. They are to witness this all themselves as well. Now, what's even more fascinating as we read through the unfolding of Pharaoh's power and his kingdom being unmade, are the responses to those continuing to disbelieve and refuse worship of the true God? See, this is God's main aim, is not that they would simply believe, but believe in a way that would lead them to worship Him. And so God's raw demonstration of power, and as we mentioned before, the contrast with what they thought was power, what they thought was sovereignty. And to see this raw demonstration. Like many of us, it drove them to the feeling of dread and the feeling of being threatened. You know, really, God's power is terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying. But it's terrifying in a way that it's meant to move us to worship him in awe, to worship him in awe. And so he is driving them to see his power. But in their threatened state, they create acts of desperation along the way. And it's most vivid to me when in the picture of the the Nile turning red, blood, that people are trying desperate for their water, and scraping the side of the Nile, trying to find water that's not sullied with what is in the Nile. It's not far off from the picture of me before Christ, for many of you, when we have a realization of how powerful God is to what we consider power and sovereignty, it can feel real threatening if your heart is not soft to see that threatening as also the flip side, your rescuer. The one who will battle for you in your heart. Then it's not threatening, it's comforting. It's life-giving. Oftentimes, though, we don't see it that way, and we also conduct acts of desperation. Any way to avoid the threatening, menacing, hovering, situation over us. Like the Egyptians, were just clawing for water somewhere. Like the frogs, which were effectively representative of gods for the Egyptians, so our gods, our idols, also turn on us. This is what the picture paints. Their gods basically come out of the Nile and become a nuisance and a destructive force for them. Not only that, while they would not kill them, the frogs die as a part of God's movement of this plague and leave a stench. The picture painted is undeniable. Our idols and our gods eventually give them time. They'll turn on you. They'll enslave you. And they will be a stench to your life. And so they took them out of their house, they collected them, they went and burned them. And this is what we do. We go and we think, I'm just gonna burn them. I'm gonna put that behind me. And then we go on to the next God, an idol, that's gonna attack us eventually. This is just a, just breaking down like how we respond to God when he comes and power and sovereignty. When we choose not to respond in the way he's wanting us to respond in belief and trust and worship we'll choose sometimes to just be paralyzed. Paralyzed because we realize I am powerless. I mean, I knew I was small, but now I'm not just small, I'm powerless. This is the feeling that the magicians of Pharaoh's court felt when after a couple of times where they can kind of hang with Moses and Aaron and do the same tricks through the dark arts and magic, all of a sudden, eventually they ran into a plague they couldn't replicate and couldn't counter. And they said, we can't counter this. This is obviously the finger of God. In other words, God's providence. We can't combat this. They were paralyzed. They were knew they were powerless. And sometimes we just spin our wheels in life. We just choose to live a paralyzed life in the face of how our God, we know who he is. We've seen his power, but we just can't trust him, and we just won't worship him. So we just spin our wheels. And our paralysis takes a lot of forms. Sometimes it's through addictions that numb us. Sometimes it's through other means, but we find a way to just exist. We're not really living anymore. Dole the pain. And then we see along the way, and this is not just one occurrence of plagues, but this is along the way we see that the plagues were terrifying enough to Pharaoh that a couple of times along the way he tried to bargain with God. He was like, okay, okay, enough. You guys can worship your God. Just don't go into the wilderness. Don't, Don't leave Stay here in the land and do it here. And Moses says, those weren't the instructions. (laughs) We cannot follow man, we follow God. Those weren't the instructions. So he's like, okay, fine, you can't go then. And then later, tries again, goes, okay, you can go. You can go. You can go into the wilderness and even take your little ones. But leave your herds and cattle here, Moses said, That's not what the Lord said. We cannot follow you. We have to follow God. So times in our terror before the Lord, instead of worshiping him for his great might and what it does on our behalf, we'll instead bargain with him, try to make deals with him, Father, if you would just leave me alone, if you would stop being so terrifying, if you just let me live the life I want to live and make it fairly and relatively easy, I will give half of my life to you. I'll live most of my life. These areas of my life, I would rather just keep as my part and I make my decisions and I'm my own. But I will give this part of my life to you. I'll give you my money. I can do that. I got some extra but I don't want to give you my commitments. I don't want to give you my children. So we bargain with God. We try to bargain down a halfway faith. Can I only believe you partially? Can I be only partially in? And the Lord time and again says, no, no. And so then they're brought to practical ruin. This happens to us as well. The flies, the gnats, the locusts, I mean, the hail brought damage to them economically. The fact that they gave out of God's sovereignty so many of their riches and treasures to the people of God for them to take. Their health with the boils I mean, really, we're just talking about things that people usually count on as their foundations are being ripped out from underneath them. Their foundations are being taken away. They're being shaken. And there's great despair when our foundations are shaken. I mean, just great despair. And oftentimes, we shut down. We shut down. We choose to do this instead of now responding in trust and belief and giving ourselves fully to him and worshiping him. And finally, and especially in the loss of the firstborn son, in the individualistic West, we do not get this nearly as much as people of other ancient societies would understand this. But the firstborn son was representative of legacy, of your future. And this is why the Pharaoh said, When you go out, say a good word for me too. Because he reached his breaking point. His legacy is gone, his future is gone, his security and safety is gone. It doesn't have to be the firstborn son. I would just say it this way. It's whatever the most treasured God you have is. What do you worship above all else in this world? What do you need? And if you don't get it, you're desperate. You'll lie. You'll cheat. You'll steal. You'll hurt to get it. This is the God you treasure most. And that God was taken away from Pharaoh and all the people. So, just walking through these plagues and just thinking through how it is we respond in our lives when those things, those things are very real to us. When they are, in many cases, God just showing his power and sovereignty in our lives and just pleading with us to respond, to trust him, to give ourselves to him, and to worship him with all of our heart. I do want to make a few observations before we talk through how we might respond today to this text, because there are some very specific ways we can respond. First thing I want to say is that God knows true worship should not and is not an inconvenience to us, that it's actually really, really good for us, that actually the way he created us, we were designed to worship. We are worship machines, man. We will find a way to worship. It doesn't matter what we believe or how we believe. We will worship in some way, some form, some fashion. God designed us that way and he knows there is no satisfaction finally and ultimately in any worship of any kind in this world that does not rest and terminate on him and so God knows true worship is freedom for us and so he continues to have Moses and Aaron to insist go back to him time and again and insist let my people go let my people go this is God saying I want what's best for you. And so he goes to our idols, goes to our gods, and says, let my people go. Let my people go. This is nothing short of God. Through the mediated voice of Moses and Aaron fighting for us, he battles for our freedom from the enslavement of our false gods and the promises they can't deliver so that we can worship him alone. You see, the Passover event is truly a test of whether both the Egyptians and God's people would continue to worship and trust the false gods of Egypt or trust and worship the one true God. And it's a test for us every day we wake up. What will I value? What will I ascribe worship the most to today? What can I not go without today? Something else that's important to recognize, there are no natural or self-evident good guys or bad guys in this story. I know it seems like there is, like the Israelites, God's people, are the good guys, and the Egyptians and Pharaoh, especially Pharaoh, are the bad guys. But read it a little more closely. That's not really what the text communicates, even in a circumstance where there are clear, clear oppressors and oppressed, and there are clearly oppressors and oppressed in this circumstance They were all sinners and guilty of idolatry and in need of God's intervention on their behalf. There were no good guys who had it made and just needed to cruise into the promised land. Otherwise, otherwise, they would not have had to put the blood of a lamb over their doorstep. That little intervening fact showed that God's people needed the blood of a redeemer every bit as much as the Egyptians. This is a cautionary tale for us not to live our lives through the grid of good guys and bad guys, but to remember we all need a savior, a redeemer, Many of us do our most grievous sins, in fact, thinking we're good guys. And when we really believe and think we're good guys, we do our most grievous sins in response to being sinned against. When we've been sinned against, we let people have it and we justify it because we're the good guys and we get to do that. But everyone needs God's redemption or there is no future Spiritually or eternally, we all do. And so he presents them with an opportunity, a glorious opportunity to trust him. Instead of death, instead of no future, they would be passed over and live by way of God's supplied substitute substitute atonement, the blood across the door. Now we know that 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 was representative and symbolic of the greater and final atonement that was put to us in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. We know that reading our Bibles forward. But they were trusting in the Redeemer by responding to God's call for sacrifice and trust in the blood. And so God recognized those who did place their faith in his word. Because that's what God does. He recognized those who placed their faith in his word, his gospel, and passed over the homes with the blood of God's supplied lamb, saving their firstborns and their future. This, many of you know this, many of you may not. You're not familiar with the Old Testament, you're not familiar with the Bible. Not familiar with how we're supposed to read our Old Testament, at least somewhat in light of the New Testament and the redemption found in Christ. This was all a shadow of what would be the true and final atonement. And so in a twist, God supplies his own firstborn. God the Son. Christ Jesus as our atonement. He gives him over to death on the cross as our sacrificial lamb so that we can now be God's redeemed firstborn sons and daughters who inherit a full and eternal life. God's firstborn so that we can become firstborn sons and daughters. I say that for a few reasons. One, because this is the gospel. (laughs) This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what everyone makes a big deal about who follows Christ. This is great news for those who know how deeply they're indebted to a payment, a penalty they cannot pay before a holy God. See, Jesus was the true and final Passover lamb, and his atoning death on the cross was an act of God's grace. He clearly shows that this is a costly atonement. While free to us, When we trust Jesus, it cost the Son of God his life. He who was without sin became a ransom for many. For me, for me, for many of you here, I know, and anyone that would put their faith and trust in Christ's redemptive actions. And how about today? Why not today? Why not? Put your faith in what he did, recognizing it's what you never could have done. And give yourself to him and worship him. I want to conclude this way. And um, I just want to help us before I give us some ways of response. I, I want to first address posture. What God did on the cross in the person of Jesus, he without sin, God gave his best, God the Son. But he didn't just give it for me to be a little better. If you could posture yourself this way right now, just consider the worst you've ever done. And when I say the worst, I know some of you have been relatively good people in life compared to others. But others of us have not. I'm just saying contextually within your life and your history, the worst. The kind of worst that kind of keeps you up at night and still causes you to cringe when your mind rolls back to that. And you almost relive it over again. And whatever was involved, action-wise, words-wise, God gave his best to you in that moment. For that moment and all moments emanating from your worst. I say that for two reasons. One, to prevent us from the sin of pride to believe I've too far gone for God's blood to save. That's pride. He is more powerful and sovereign than the worst you have to bring. And His blood is more sufficient for all than you could possibly imagine. And so we posture our hearts with humility based upon what he has done and giving his best for our worst. With that said, I want to lead or challenge you to respond in at least one of three ways today. One, if you've come here today far from God or maybe near to God but not quite trusting, believing, and worshiping God, I just want to challenge you to respond in faith and trust Christ today. Trust him as your true atonement, as your ransom. And and we had baptisms last week, three, two this week. We got none planned the next week. Force me to fill the tank again. Trust him. Trust him today and be baptized as your public confession and obedience and, act and action of faith in the gospel. Don't put it off. If you want to know and walk through what that looks like, a friend, family member, another trusted other, you can talk to any of the pastors here if you recognize them or be directed to one. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him as your true atonement. Second, if you are already a follower of Jesus, you came in here, you trust him with your life, no matter where you came in here, situationally, seasonally. We take communion weekly, and quite frankly, it should be a central aspect to corporate worship for Christ's followers, because it paints a never-shifting picture of what Christ did in the broken body and shed blood. So you have a table, a table, a table, a table for communion. If you're new with us and you follow Jesus, just so you know where those are, you can go and take of those at any point. You can go alone. You can go with family. It can be a moment of reflection and prayer. But here's what I want to say. Take and eat and be aware that in Christ's broken body and shed blood, he was our Passover lamb. And let that wash over you. Let that impact you in a way maybe it hasn't impacted you for some time. Peter says this, knowing that you were ransomed. This is a good reflection as you take communion. Knowing you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Think on that as you take communion for he was a lamb without blemish or spot. Lastly, and this one's probably self-evident in even communion, but respond in some other means of worship today. And I don't mean just kind of like, yeah, let's worship. I mean really respond in worship today. For the remainder of our time together, the response to God's gift for the people of Israel, did you notice, was immediate. It was immediate and specific. They began worshiping on the spot the minute they realized they had been passed over. They had passed from no future and death. And there was life in their household. They didn't wait until Pharaoh let them go to the wilderness. Oh, they worshiped there too. But they didn't wait. It was immediate. They immediately responded to the grace from this costly ransom. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Well, gratitude is probably the most obvious answer that most people would say in response to that question. But the kind of gratitude that produces the kind of worship that happened there on the spot And what I am challenging us to engage in right here in this place is what Miroslav Volf calls the generous release of genuine debt. Whether it's for the first time or to remember again, we genuinely believe we have a debt that was generously released for us on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate. Celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The most sincere and truth-bearing way to respond to Christ and how he willingly became our ransom is to have profound humility and gratitude. And it's also to receive divine forgiveness to confess the need for divine forgiveness. Without Christ, we know and confess that we would be condemned in our sin, and yet Christ received, took on our condemnation in his death on the cross so that we can be released from an unpayable debt. That is why they could not help but respond in worship. How will you respond in joyful worship today? I mean, worship and song, we do that weekly. So that's obvious. That's good. Respond in worship through song, for sure. But let me expand your thoughts a little bit. See if the Spirit might urge and nudge you in other ways or in additional ways. Maybe it's through a bold commitment that you've been avoiding. Bold commitment you've been avoiding. One that's been handing you a way in which you need to hand your life and to devote your life fully to God in a way that you've held back. Maybe it's through repentance that you've been avoiding. Knowing the gift of repentance is there and available to you. In an act of worship, you need to joyfully worship by being able to repent freely in a way that you've been avoiding over something you've been avoiding. I don't really talk about this. Well, I talk about this maybe once or twice a year even. But we actually have an offering box in the back. i um, never passed a plate since I've been here. I don't think that's necessarily, I'm not a fan of one being good or the other being good and one being bad, the other being bad. But we have one back there. for some of you your act of worship today will be something you've never done before and you're going to give generously to the to the cause of the gospel <laughs> and you're going to begin doing it as a regular part of your gratitude liturgy of life Did you notice how twice he encouraged them to celebrate and hold festival and remember, have memorials. Memorials are good. Did you know Sunday mornings are a memorial to the resurrection? Every week we, we come, we celebrate the resurrection. It doesn't have to be Sunday mornings, but there are specific practices and liturgies, spiritual habits that you've been urged to do. Maybe your response in worship is to finally engage in an act of discipline through the power of the Spirit in a way that you know you should should be involved in, whether it's more regular worship, whether it's more regular seasonal prayer, whether it's meditating on the Scripture text in in a more planned way. He's basically asking them to plan out their obedience from year to year. It's not wooden. That's not rigid. It's just discipline. Finally, did something, I'm not sure if you noticed this. Actually, I don't even know that we, yeah, we didn't even get to this text. But in in verse 38, it says a mixed multitude also went with them. What does that mean? It means the people of God and God himself had sway over some Egyptians living in the land that became a part of them, that came with them and said, I want to be a part of the people of God. That no doubt has a link attached to it. If you go back far enough, the people of God were telling the gospel to other people. And some believed and came and wanted to worship the true God with them. Maybe your act of worship is a dogged determination and commitment to go and share and invite others to worship the one true God. I don't know how you respond today. All I know is that the Passover is ripe for response. So may it be so for us.